one of the issues we've been working on now uh, probably for about 10 years is the Workplace Religious Freedom Act. Any, anybody here ever had difficulties at work with Sabbath obligations? I see a couple hands going up. Well, the law as it stands today is extraordinarily weak. And, you know, this week, Martin Luther King Jr. has been in the news. Of course, it's the 40th anniversary of, of his death, and uh, a lot has been made of that. Well, one of the things that resulted from the civil rights movement were the civil rights laws outlawing discrimination in employment. And we have very vigorous laws against race discrimination and gender and disability and age. But religion, although it's included, has been so watered down by the courts that we need to strengthen it. And this year we have uh, 25 co-sponsors in Congress, but we need to round up the rest of our legislators and get their support. Um, so one of the things that I want everybody to do is to go home and, and get on the website at religiousliberty.info and, and send a letter in support of the Workplace Religious Freedom Act. It really does make a difference. I think it was either in late, I think it was mid-February now. We had hearings in the House. We just had a week's notice about hearings. And so we sent emails out, uh, you know, far and wide, urging people to send their emails in support. Nationwide, I think we generated something like 35,000 emails in support and uh, very much got the attention of Congress with, with our campaign and, and people in other organizations that you would think would be uh, you know, really good at getting out the numbers and, and getting grassroots support, they were very impressed with the kind of numbers that we were able to generate uh, with the North American Religious Liberty Association. But we can't stop there. We've got some momentum because we did have hearings in the House and we need to push it through. Um, we just have to keep, keep working. Uh, it took 15 years. Uh, I'm sorry, 20 years to get the Americans with Disabilities Act passed. Now, if you're someone who needed accommodation in the workplace because you're in a wheelchair or you have vision problem or some other uh, handicap, would you think that there was ever a time to give up and say, oh, well, I guess I'll just have to make do without any legal protection? No. And it took 20 years. And if it takes us 20 years, we're still going to advocate for protection for religious freedom in the workplace. Well, I'd just like to have a word of prayer before, before preaching this morning. Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, this is sacred time. This is your holy Sabbath day. And we have come into your house, Lord, not to hear smooth words, not to hear from me, but to hear from you. And Lord, I just pray that you would show up and, and fulfill your promise and bless us. May we hear your voice. May we be encouraged and inspired. May we know that we've been with Jesus is my prayer. And Lord, may I be hid in Christ just now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The title of my sermon is, Will the Real Christian America Please Stand Up? And I guess this is part one, because we'll continue with some of these things this afternoon. 
America is at a crossroads. Her morals and standards have fallen so low, if God does not intervene soon, he will have to apologize to Sodom. Christians have a responsibility to work for the establishment of the kingdom of God. The United States was chosen from the beginning to be God's instrument, God's country, God's tool for bringing the kingdom of God to this sin-sick world. Now it's our turn. We must elect godly rulers and restore the greatness of America. America is a Christian nation. And we must never believe the satanic lie that there must be a separation of church and state. Separation of church and state is a lie of the left, a deception. We must legislate morality and restore prayer in public life, in public schools. Restore the Ten Commandments as the symbol of our national aspiration to do what we proclaim on our coins. Trust God and obey him. Can anyone say amen? I didn't fool all of you, did I? Okay, well, I'm glad you're awake. I was going to ask if anyone believes the speech I just gave. Uh, you've heard things, so some of you have heard these things before. If you listen to Christian radio and television, you hear stuff like this all the time, don't you? Christian leaders are constantly talking about how America is a Christian nation and how we must return the nation to its godly heritage. I think it was Adolf Hitler who taught us that it's far easier to deceive the people with a big lie than with a little one. Well, the idea that America was founded to be a Christian nation, folks, is a big lie, a really big lie and a dangerous one, and just so no one misunderstands me, my opening speech was just a test. It was false. Don't want any confusion here. Americans are being set up for a great deception. We're being primed to deliver the mark of the beast to the world, to implement a satanic system of oppression, all the while thinking that we're doing God's bidding. Now, America does have a unique role to play in God's plan, but many will be surprised to learn what the Bible really says about the United States in prophecy. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, beginning in verse 11. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising up out of the earth, it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon, and it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It was in 1850 that J. N. Andrews first connected this prophecy with the United States, I don't have time this morning to explain why Seventh-day Adventists are convinced that this nation, the United States, are rising up, or the nation uh, portrayed in prophecy here, rising up out of the earth, represents the United States of America. What I want to do this morning is to examine the meaning of the passage. Two horns like a lamb. It says this beast, this nation, will have two horns like a lamb. 
The lamb, of course, is a symbol of Christ. Horns are a symbol of power. The prophecy declares that in its approach to power, America is uniquely Christ-like. It is meek, it is mild, gentle as a lamb. There's another nation of Bible prophecy represented as a beast with two horns. We find it in Daniel chapter 8, a ram with two horns representing the combined power of the Medes and the Persians. And if you remember the story in Daniel chapter 5 of the end of the Babylonian kingdom under Belshazzar, who had committed the unpardonable sin of of arrogantly feasting with the uh, vessels stolen from Solomon's temple, all the while praising his idol gods of of wood and stone and and getting rip-roaring drunk. In the middle of the feast, Belshazzar was terrified by the appearance of a disembodied hand writing an unknown message on the wall. He sobered up fast and eventually had the presence of mind to invite Daniel to interpret the message. And Daniel read the handwriting on the wall and said, you're weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians, the two horns on the ram of Daniel 8, the kingdom that overthrew Babylon, And so too in Revelation 13 we have two horns, this time on a lamb, also representing distinct powers or a separation of powers, not two separate peoples or nations coming together. So in what way does the United States have separate powers? Well, we have a constitutional doctrine called the separation of powers. We separate power among the three branches of government, legislative, executive, judicial power. But we also separate power among three levels of government, federal, state, local government. When I was in law school, I worked for a professor of mine uh, who had literally made a career on the doctrine of the separation of powers. And back in the 80s, to all of us students, that just seemed like the most boring topic. There was no action in the separation of powers. It, it, it seemed totally irrelevant. And last year I attended the, 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 uh, the annual um, constitutional law seminar at uh, symposium at Pepperdine Law School, brought the best legal minds in the nation together to talk about, guess what? The separation of powers. Because now in our post-9-11 political climate, Separation of powers has become a huge issue, and we can talk about some of that this afternoon. Why do we separate power? Well, in order to preserve civil and religious freedom. Ellen White, commenting on the symbol of the two horns, explained, and I quote, Republicanism and Protestantism became the fundamental principles of the nation. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. Well, in what way is Protestantism a fundamental principle of the American nation? What on earth does Ellen White mean? Does she mean the same thing as as Christian leaders today mean when they say America was established to be a, a Christian nation? Emphatically, no. Now, in the same book, The Great Controversy, Ellen White recounts the story of how the Reformation got the name Protestant. And in so doing, she credits the historian 
uh, Merle Daubigny, for giving us clear insight into the foundation principle of Protestantism. In 1529, the Church Council met in the German city of Spires in order to crush the Reformation. It enacted a decree that would restrict the preaching of the gospel to those areas that had already adopted the Reformation teaching. And it also required that no new reforms would be adopted. The church demanded that the German princes who supported the Reformation accept the decree. Prayerfully, as the German princes met and considered, they rejected the decree and instead issued a document they called a protest. And it was this document, this protest, that gave the very name Protestant to the Reformation. And so Daubigny rightly declares that this protest contains the very fundamental principles of Protestantism. And listen, I'm going to quote from the protest. We protest by these presents before God, our only creator, preserver, redeemer, and savior, and who will one day be our judge, as well as before all men and all creatures, that we, for us and for our people, neither consent nor adhere in any manner whatsoever to the proposed decree, in anything that is contrary to God, to his holy word, to our right conscience to the salvation of our souls. Let us reject the decree, the princess said, quote, in matters of conscience, the majority has no power. Amen? Amen. In matters of conscience, the majority has no power. America is a Protestant nation because she protects liberty of conscience. And I would add that she does that not only by the First Amendment provisions for religious freedom, but for freedom of speech and the press and assembly and in many other ways as well. Uh, After all, today we are exercising pretty much all of our First Amendment rights, and, of course, freedom of speech and assembly, as well as religious freedom. America is a Protestant nation because she protects liberty of conscience. She is a Republican nation, little r, not referring to a political party, but to the principles of a republic because of the separation of powers among the branches of government. Now, do you see how liberty of conscience is connected to the foundation doctrines of Protestantism? The Reformation emphasized the opportunity for the individual to respond directly to Christ by faith. And neither the powers of church or state had any right or authority to interfere between the soul and Christ. You must respond to the love of Christ by faith, not by force or coercion. Amen? All of the Reformation teachings, like justification by faith, the priesthood of all believers, sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only, all of these led directly to the conclusion that in matters of conscience, the majority have no power. And it doesn't matter whether it's a majority of princes or priests. They do not have power to interfere 
between your soul and Christ. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to answer to me. You're going to stand before Christ. It's between you and Jesus, isn't it? Now, despite these great ideas, the Reformation didn't practice its own principles of liberty of conscience. Religious enthusiasm very quickly led to fanaticism and anarchy and threatened stability and order. In order to save the Reformation, the principle was adopted that the religion of the people should be the religion of the prince. It would be nearly 300 years before these Protestant principles would be put into practice as the basis for the civil government of a nation when the United States was ratified. Actually, they were first put into practice in civil government in Rhode Island in, in the early mid, mid part of the 17th century under the guidance of Roger Williams. So the Constitution protects liberty of conscience in at least two ways. First, its Republican principles establish a government of limited delegated powers where original power belongs to whom? To we the people. And its Protestant principles expressly protect liberty of conscience in the Bill of Rights as a limitation on majority rule. The Bill of Rights restricts the power of any majority to infringe on fundamental rights. Now, when the Constitution was first sent to the states to be ratified, there were many protests that it needed a Bill of Rights. But defenders of the Constitution, like James Madison, argued that the Constitution didn't give the federal government any power to trample on fundamental rights, such as freedom of speech or the press or religious freedom, because it was a government of limited powers. And among the powers delegated to the federal government, there was no power to infringe on the liberties of the people. Thankfully, the people insisted that if this was true, it wouldn't hurt to put it in writing. In other words, give us a Bill of Rights and make it clear that the new government cannot violate our rights. And Jefferson, writing from France, urged Madison, uh, but it was actually uh, the author of, of hymn number 448 in our, in our Adventist hymnal, John Leland, a, a Baptist minister in Virginia who urged Madison and said, we're not going to elect you to the first uh, Congress if you don't support a Bill of Rights. Well, no doubt you heard about that uh, stunning, uh, uh, astonishing California appellate court decision holding that parents have no constitutional right to homeschool their children. Did you hear about that case? Thankfully, the, um, the court has now withdrawn its opinion and will, has asked for a rehearing and, and re-argument of some of those issues. But, you know, that decision is a repudiation of the very concept of a constitution. Power belongs to the people. It resides in the people. The states derive their power from us. Now, it's true, we the people have delegated some responsibility for education to the states, but the states can never assume that they have the exclusive power to educate. The primary duty to educate kids, the primary responsibility resides with whom? With parents, not with the states. But the court has turned this upside down and denied that parents have any constitutional right 
to educate their own children. This is really quite bizarre. Um, I, I, we're, we're almost certainly going to file a brief now on, uh, on the rehearing and, and try to talk some sense to this court. The very basic concept of a Bill of Rights is that the rights that belong to the people are protected against the power of the government or any majority to violate. And this applies equally to Congress, to the executive, and to the courts, as well as to the states and the state courts. Listen to what the Fourth Amendment says as an example. Very important today. The right of the people to be secure in their persons houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. And no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment does not contain an exception for the president acting as commander-in-chief to wiretap all of our phones because he wants to catch terrorists. Even the president of the United States must obtain a search warrant that describes with particularity the place to be searched and the warrant cannot be issued unless there is probable cause unless the government has probable cause, that is, good reason to believe that you have committed or are intending to commit a crime, it cannot obtain a warrant to listen to your phone calls. We'll look at some more examples of this sort of thing this afternoon. My point is, is, is not to beat up, on, or to be partisan, or, or to beat up on one party or another or one political leader or another, my point is simply this. America is not a Christian nation in the sense that we usually hear. The founding fathers did not design our government to favor Christianity. Instead, they established our Constitution on Protestant principles of respect for civil and religious freedom, on principles of liberty of conscience. Less than 10 years after the Constitution was ratified, the United States entered a treaty with the Muslim nation of Tripoli in North Africa. Pirates from the Barbary Coast were attacking American merchant vessels so that the administration of President George Washington negotiated a treaty. Because of the historic enmity between Christian Europe and the Islamic world, the treaty contained as an essential basis for making peace the following declaration, Article 11, and I quote, As the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, as it has in itself no character of enmity, against the laws, religion, or t tranquility of Muslimen, which was the term used for the Muslims at that time. And as the said states never entered into any war or active hostility against any Mohammedan nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions 
shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. So you see, religious freedom and the separation of church and state provide the solution to the age-old problem of killing people and making war in the name of God. When we separate church and state, we're no longer going to go marching on to war, holding up the banners of Christ and killing the infidels, or vice versa, because we've separated church and state. Now, the, this treaty with, uh, uh, with Tripoli was ratified not by the Washington administration, but shortly after John Adams took office. So we have historical evidence here that the first two presidential administrations understood and endorsed the idea that America made it a matter of American law that America is not founded on the Christian religion. And so this is consistent with what our third president, vice president under Adams, Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote to the Danbury Baptists and assured them of respect for their religious freedom and used the expression of how the First Amendment erected a wall of separation between church and state. Critics will argue that the phrase separation of church and state doesn't appear in the Constitution, but it's a meaningless argument. The phrase separation of powers doesn't appear in the Constitution either. It's what the Constitution does, not what it says. The Constitution doesn't say it separates church and state. That's what it does in the First Amendment. Now, these men, Washington and Adams, Jefferson, they're, they're often quoted in support of the idea that America was to be a Christian nation. But their sentiments are so often misunderstood or misapplied, taken out of context. For example, here's a famous quote uh, from George Washington, often used by Christian nation advocates. Washington said, and I quote, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity. Religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let us indulge with caution the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail to the exclusion of religious principle. I have no argument with that. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Washington that not only political prosperity, but the preservation of freedom itself depends on religion and morality. But nowhere does Washington suggest that religion is the business of the state or that the government has a role to play or is needed to promote religion. I ask you as Christians... Does God need a handout from Caesar? Do you see my point? Let's go back to our text, Revelation 13 and verse 12. I had to close my Bible. The, uh, the air was blowing it all around. Revelation 13 and verse 12. It says that the, the beast that 
has or had two horns like a lamb, will speak as a dragon and exercise all the authority of the first beast in its presence and make the earth and its inhabitants to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So when the United States speaks as a dragon, the Bible says she will exercise all the authority of the first beast in its presence. And as the passage continues, as a result, it will form an image of the first beast and impose the mark of the first beast. And the sanctions uh, on those who fail to accept or receive the mark of the beast will be, first of all, economic, that no one can buy or sell, and ultimately, the death penalty. Now, the first beast is symbolized in both uh, Daniel chapter 7 and 8 as a single little horn. It is a power that for more than a thousand years exercised both civil and religious authority in Europe. We refer to it as Rome in its ecclesiastical phase. The United States has no right given to it to exercise religious authority. Right? Nothing in our Constitution gave delegated power over religion to government. And all of the states have similar uh, restrictions, similar Republican forms of government, and similar uh, 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 amendments, rights built into their state constitutions like our First Amendment. Many of them are even stricter than the First Amendment language in separating church and state. The First Amendment is not a grant of power to the government to deal with religion. It expressly forbids Congress from having any power over religion. Do you see? By extension, uh, the president is supposed to exercise the acts of Congress. By extension, uh, really, the government in total cannot exercise any jurisdiction over religion. After the Civil War amendments, the, uh, the rights and the Bill of Rights began to be applied as restrictions on state power as well, not just Congress. The United States has no right to exercise religious authority, and yet this is precisely what Christians in our country are diligently pursuing power to do, to obtain government support, funding, regulation in support of religion. They want to impose religious doctrine on every aspect of law and government. For example, they want public schools to teach religious doctrines to promote Christian prayer and scriptures like the Ten Commandments. They want government to finance overtly Christian ministries, the so-called faith-based initiatives, not just non-sectarian social service ministries like ADRA or Catholic Charities or Lutheran World Services and these kinds of organizations, but ministries that overtly proselytize and teach people to, to give their lives to Christ. Now, I certainly believe that we should teach people to give their lives to Christ, but I don't think that we need Caesar's gold in order to do it. Do you? 
Uh, they want Christian values to dominate public policy, both domestic and foreign policy. In short, our Christian friends are unwittingly doing the will of the dragon, turning America into a dragon. Now this afternoon in part two of the series, we're going to take a closer look at just what it means for America to speak as a dragon and ask just how far have we already come in repudiating the principles of our Constitution as a Republican and Protestant nation. And most importantly, we're going to explore in greater detail the final warning message that must be given to the world. Before we close, I'd like to put this discussion of America and prophecy into both historical and spiritual perspective. And it it's, won't take long. Our nation, indeed our world, faces a most critical choice. The power of God or the power of the state. Returning to the speech I gave, uh, the, the false speech I gave at the beginning, many Christians agree, I, I would agree, that our civilization is in an advanced state of moral and spiritual decline. Where we disagree is on the remedy. Too many look to government to play too large of a role in solving what is first and foremost a spiritual problem. More than a century ago, Ellen White observed that Protestant America had become disconnected from Christ because she failed to follow Christ into the Holy of Holies of the heavenly sanctuary and was left behind. The real left behind message. Refusing to enter the sanctuary, Protestants failed to perceive the light shining from the Holy of Holies on the law of God. And they rejected the Sabbath truth and began to preach that God's law was nailed to the cross, that Christians are not under law but under grace. Adventist preachers and evangelists have began warning and have been preaching ever since that such teaching would undermine public morals inevitably as well as respect for human law. And so here we are, more than a century later, and we lament the decline in public morals, a decline that we cannot rightly blame on Hollywood or on Washington, D.C., on Congress. But it, the, the blame has to be laid at the door of the American churches. So here we are, dangerously close to trading our freedom for security and for moral order dangerously close to wanting government to impose religion and morality and security in order to preserve what remains of our civilization. And, sad to say, many Seventh-day Adventists are on the wrong side of these issues. What we desperately need to hear is the warning against uniting church and state, the warning against relying on the arm of princes to build up God's kingdom, the message that God's kingdom is not of this world and that righteousness is not by force but by faith. Amen? Amen. 
Yet many Seventh-day Adventists are guilty of a faulty logic in thinking that we should not raise a voice against the loss of liberty. Because after all, we know that Sunday laws must come before Jesus returns. And we don't want to delay the coming of Christ now, do we? We want to hasten it. And so, too often, we fail to understand the very warning message that God has entrusted to these people, for these, to his people for these last days. It is a warning against spiritual adultery, against the church becoming intimate with the state and relying on political power to build up the kingdom of God. It's a call to return to Christ in the hour of his judgment, to find Christ in the holy of holies of the heavenly sanctuary, engaged in the solemn work of cleansing and purifying the saints, it is a message to prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ by taking hold of the power of God by faith. Will the real Christian America please stand up? The real Christian America displays the spirit of Christ. It does not coerce the conscience. It does not ask the state to finance the work of God, but trust God to finance his own church. It does not ask the state to promote religious belief. It trusts God to bring conviction to the human heart. It does not trample on individual rights, but protects both civil and religious liberties. Now this afternoon, we need to take a closer look at whether a truly Christian America engages in torture, spying on its own citizens, indefinite detentions of both citizens and immigrants alike preemptive wars, the restriction of civil and religious liberties. But we also need to examine the theology that most logically provides the foundation for the mark of the beast. It is actually the fastest growing theology in America today. As well as the eschatology, uh, the theory of last day events, that will deceive Christians into believing that the mark of the beast is yet future. I stand before you today to defend the real Christian America. It is a nation with a lamb-like approach to power, protecting civil and religious freedom. It is based on the Protestant principle that in matters of conscience, the majority has no power. Will you stand with me? Will you? I invite you, literally, to stand, to stand now, to show your support for the real Christian America. I also invite you to take the first step in preserving and defending the real Christian America by joining the North American Religious Liberty Association. We'll talk more about that uh, this afternoon, and the website's easy enough to remember. It's religiousliberty.info. 
Uh, Narla was formed to advance the work of religious liberty to project gospel truth into the halls of American power. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're standing together on a foundation that was laid not 40 years ago by Martin Luther King, but 500 years ago by Martin Luther. Lord, on the foundation principles of Protestantism, that you have called us to have a very personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, and that neither the powers of church or state can rightly interfere. Lord, we need to have a stronger, deeper, more intimate connection to you. We need to learn what it means to walk and to live by faith day by day if we are to be your Advent people to hasten and, and, and welcome and prepare not only our own hearts, but our community and our neighbors and our friends for the coming of Christ. Lord, we stand together wanting to unite together as Adventists to do your work. We lay our own petty problems and sins and flaws and cares and worries and needs. We lay them at the altar just now. Lord, you have said, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. And to consider the lilies of the field and the palo verdes and Lord, how beautiful it is in spring as we see new life and we accept new life today in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.